Lord, we come again to you today asking that you would have your way with us, that we, we know not, Lord, that you would teach us, what we have not, Lord, you would give us, and what we are not, Lord, that you would make us. But, Lord, that requires that our hearts are humble before you and teachable. So, Lord, um, right now, Lord, we want to settle our hearts to focus on you, for you to do a work in us. And Lord, I pray that I will simply be your mouthpiece, that your word would go forward with power and boldness to equip the saints, to strengthen the body, Lord, to affect the proclamation of the gospel, not just in the hearts of believers, but Lord, even in the hearts of those who do not know you. Would you be glorified this day, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Mark Twain has said a lot of profound things in his life. We have record of them, of course. And one of his famous statements is this. Giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world. I should know because I've done it thousands of times. And friends, there are times when life brings all sorts of stuff across our path. Challenges, trials, suffering, things that we have to face, things that we have to endure. Now we certainly expect that life is, is going to include some difficult times. But there are seasons in our lives when it just seems like more and more is thrown our direction. And we can get to the place where we say in our hearts, enough is enough, I just want to give up. In the context of marriage, it can come as a result of constant conflict, ongoing arguments, just always feeling like you're misunderstood, Wondering whether or not there's actually going to be a resolve. Wondering whether or not this one flesh relationship is going to actually produce something that is beautiful. And when all that is going on, you can get to the place where you're thinking to yourself, maybe I should just give in. Maybe all this effort, all this time, all this struggle just is not worth it. You just feel in your heart, I'm ready to give up. I can't do this anymore, we would say. Or maybe you're just facing a constant struggle with physical suffering. It started out with something small, but it's grown over time. And as you get older, there's more things that are hurting, there's more things that are aching, there's more muscles that are pulling. It's harder to press on. Maybe the doctor has had an interaction with you and told you that you have some serious medical condition and, and there's a part of you that says, I just don't want to face all of this. I would just rather bypass the suffering of growing old and stand in the presence of God. So you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to give up. And I think there are people that do that. I think there are people that just say, enough is enough. I just want to go home. And I think also there can be this slow drip of, of feeling insignificant, especially with the, the, uh, uh, the boom in technology that we've had over the, the past 20 or 30 years. People of my generation are, are struggling to keep up with these new college graduates, these young whippersnappers who know all these technological things and can do all these things so fast while we're still, you know, doing this on a computer. And so we kind of feel marginalized. We feel like we're put on the shelf. And it's like, what's the point? And friends, we could take this further and further and further. 
But I think one of the ways that I like to describe what's happening in this chapter, and I've shared this illustration with you before, but I think it's so helpful to get a picture of what's going on, and that is a number of years ago, I was on a church camp at Lake Mendocino, and you know how much I love camping, but this is not about camping, but we were there, and, and I was invited to go out on the lake um, and go inner tubing. Anyone here ever been inner tubing behind a speedboat? You'll know what I'm talking about. And so you get on there, and you're holding on those two handles here and, and here, and, and they start going slowly. You're like, okay, I can handle this. This is fine. And, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you see some, some wakes, the, the ripples in the water where other boats have gone. And you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to go over that a little bit. Oh, I'm going to go over that a little bit. And then they start turning the corner. And then you're like flying, and you realize I've got to shift my weight over here to keep the balance. And then what happens is that your feet that were kind of nicely up in the air, now are starting to drag in the water. And it's now pulling your body off of the inner tube. You're still holding on, but now you're holding on with every ounce of strength that you have. And that speedboat continues to go fast. And you get to a point where you're asking yourself the question, do I let go or do I fight to stay on here? Now, everyone on the sideline is saying, let go, because we want to see you tumble, right? I mean, they have signs ready with numbers on them for you, right? But you're fighting to say, am I going to hold on? Am I going to fight my way back onto this inner tube, or am I going to give up? Now, friends, I just don't know that we quite comprehend what Job has been going through. I mean, we read it. Yes, he lost his family. Yes, he lost his possessions. Yes, he, he lost his position in society. Yes, he is, his body is suffering with, with these boils and this, this, uh, this kind of disease state. And not only that, his friends have come and they have not been a help. He is at a low, an extreme low. And it would not be surprising if in his heart he's saying enough is enough. And quite frankly, he has already said that a couple of times in his uh, interaction with his friends as they've been talking. He just, wants to, he just wants to give up. He wants to die. But what we find in this passage is Job holding on to the handles of God's truth that give him perspective in the midst of his suffering. What I love about this particular chapter is that it is like a lament. In fact, it is a lament. There is movement going on. Don't read this chapter kind of in a technical sense. Read it as if this were someone expressing their feelings and their passion and their struggle. There's a lot of imagery in here. There's a lot of things that he says about people and about God and about his friends. And not all of them are necessarily there to identify specific characteristics in particular like of God. But there are expressions about feelings, about what it is like to be in this situation. But one thing that we know about Job is that he is innocent. That is clear from the beginning of the book. That's clear from the end of the book. When I say innocent, I don't mean that he has never sinned, but that there is no particular sin that has caused his suffering. And we know that the reason he is suffering is because God has released Satan to be the hand of uh, an agent of his suffering. In fact, go to the beginning of the book of Job. I want you to see this. Job chapter 1, and I want you to notice verses 11 and 12. Actually, let's pick it up at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 5, I believe it is. Pick it up at verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for sin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand 
only spare his life. Now, it's going to come into play, but understand, God is saying, I'm giving you permission, Job, to use your hand to bring about his suffering. You with me there? But Job is suffering. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. And here we have Job, who's been holding on to what he knows to be true about God and his ways, seeking to face the struggle that he's in. And what we're going to find here is that Job is fighting for faith when he just feels like giving up. And friends, this is the point when you're on that inner tube. This is the point in the midst of your suffering. This is the point in the midst of your struggle where you're saying to yourself, I'm going either to believe God or I'm going to abandon that faith in God and put my faith in something else. And often what is seeking to fashion and shape you away from God are the voices you're hearing from other people, are the feelings of your suffering, the practical nature of your pain and the things that you're having to endure, and the fact that it just seems like God is not responding. I listened to, to Ed pray this morning about his own situation about Deborah's situation. And I, I love the fact that we have two godly examples of people who are going through suffering in our church. Amen? And in the midst of that, there's that, Lord, we ask for your healing, but we also ask, Lord, if that is not your plan, that you will give us the strength and the grace that we need to face what it is you are allowing us to go through. And friends, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. In the midst of the challenge of suffering, are we still going to hold on? Now, as we look at this chapter, there's really two sections. Verses 1 through 20, um, actually 1 through 22, and then verses 23 all the way to the end. We have what I'm calling the struggle of faith, And then eventually we're going to move from the struggle of faith to what I'm calling the the strength of faith. From struggle to strength. And let's just remember, this is raw. This is Job pouring out his heart. And remember also that Job is not speaking to God here, although God is the ultimate person who is listening. He is directing his words at Bildad, who has just spoken, but also Bildad has been speaking, representing his friends. So this is a a response to his friends. So let's now pick it up um, in this first part here, the struggle of faith. And here we're going to see that Job's struggle of faith that ends ultimately with his appeal for mercy. Now, just feel what he's saying. Grab a hold of what he's talking about. First of all, he is going to, he's going to identify the fact that he is being tormented by his friends. And he's saying, basically, that, that you have caused more damage in your counsel. And ultimately, I don't answer to you. I answer to God. So let's pick it up at verse 2. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Those ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? Now notice the words that Job uses to describe how he is being treated by his friends. They are tormenting him. To torment means that you are causing them pain. He says, you're breaking me. You're crushing me with your words. You're casting reproach on me. And he's saying, how long will you continue this behavior toward me? Ten times. That's simply an expression to say, it's, it's ongoing, it's consistent, it's persistent. And it's painful. Now, his friends do come to him after his initial demise. 
And they come, we're told, with the desire to comfort and help him. And yes, they sit with him for seven days. Now, you can look at that as a positive thing, or you can look at that and say, how long can you sit with someone in silence? At least say, you know, hey, buddy, I'm, we're here for you. But it's just silence. And when Job does begin speaking, what happens to his friends? They turn on him. They turn on him with their words. And they start to, to force their, their thinking and ideology on him. They wanted this neatly packaged theology of, of um, retribution. In other words, you're, you're suffering as a result of your sin. That was their idea. That was their, their theological anchor, so to speak. But Job knows that what they're saying is not true. Because he knows that he is innocent. And of course, we have the witness of heaven as readers, reminding us that he's innocent, and yet he's still holding on. And so rather than seek to help and comfort and console Job with their words, their words are harmful, and they leave Job in despair because they're just constantly bringing this up and saying, this is what you have to do. Now, friends, if this is what it means to be a friend, then who needs enemies? This is an example of what it means to beat someone when they're down. I mean, think about it. This is, this is what he's been going through. And here come his friends to help, but they're not helping. They're just making matters worse. And so he says, are you not ashamed of the way you're treating me? Now, we've, we've already talked through just the, the whole Bildad dynamic of, of trying to be that counselor that is shaming or being harsh and not willing to listen. And the challenge here is a bold challenge. But, but Job is saying, listen, the words that you have used to seek to help me have caused more damage than they have caused help. And then he continues on. He says, now ultimately my accountability is to God. He comes up with a hypothetical. He's not saying that he had sinned, but he's saying if it were true that I had sinned, Verse 4, and even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. In other words, in this hypothetical situation, if I have sinned, this is ultimately an issue between me and God. You aren't the ones that to, to hold me accountable. It is God who would hold me accountable if that were true. I answer to him, I don't answer to you. Look at verse 5. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job is saying, listen, if it were true, still know it is God who has been the one who has been bringing all these things on me. So my, my issue and your issue isn't so much with me. My issue is with God. I have to do something with him. And that's what we've been seeing that Job has been appealing for throughout the book so far. He's been seeking answers, but there's silence. And so he's appealed for an advocate. He's, he's, he's been confident there's a witness in heaven that will appeal for him. But he's speaking to his friends and saying, listen, this is not your issue. I am accountable to God and him alone. So Job is, first of all, tormented by his friends. Secondly, Job is bombarded by his God. In this section, Job articulates the many ways that God has bombarded him with the arrows of affliction. I get that language from earlier in the book, the arrows of the Almighty, describing the many ways that God has come at Job. And Job is using imagery here to help us understand the kinds of things that he is experiencing. Look at verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence. Now this isn't, you know, behold, I cry out violence. This is, behold, I cry out violence. I've been wronged. What I'm experiencing is, in, is injustice. And as a result of that, I cry out to God. And guess what? There's no answer. I'm crying out to God for help. There's no justice. So the first thing that we see here is there's no justice from God. 
Secondly, there's no escape. The picture changes. He has walled up my way so I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my path. So he's, God's created this obstruction so that Job cannot escape his suffering. He's boxed in, and he's, he's covered the path out or the way of escape with darkness to make it impossible to escape his trial. That's the imagery that he's trying to convey. So there's no justice, there's no escape. Verse 9, he has stripped from me my glory. He has taken the crown from my head. So Job has been disgraced by his suffering. And, and the, the, the reputation, rep, good reputation has been removed. So there's no honor now. This is all part of God's doing. There's no hope. Verses 10 and 11, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope He has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. There's a picture here of a building, a building being torn down or demolished. What was once a strong, beautiful structure is now just a pile of rubble. And that is how Job sees himself. And, And as I'm reading that, my mind is reflecting up to the Santa Rosa fires or the Paradise fires that we had, where these beautiful homes once stood and just, just over you know, a little bit of time, it's just nothingness, except might be the remnants of a chimney. There's nothing there that is significant. And that's the idea. It's just gone. I'm gone. I've been pulled down. And then he uses this picture of a tree. It's like a tree that's been pulled up. So the roots are all dangling. The branches are all bent and disfigured. The leaves are drying up because they no longer have any root system nourishing them. So there's no hope for survival for that tree. And there's no hope for that building to be restored. And that's how he feels. There's no hope. And this has all been because of Job's adversary. And that's a description of God who has been bombarding him with these arrows. And then there's no end, no end. The picture here is of a siege or a city under siege. His troops come, to, come on together. The idea is there, they're, 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 this idea of come on, in other words, they continue to come. They're just, all these troops continue to come and they, they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. So here's a city and it's surrounded by these armies, and they're beginning now to create the siege ramps so that they can come and they can overtake the city. And of course, my mind goes to the city uh, or the, the place called Masada in Israel. You may know the story. Eighty seventy, Israel is destroyed. The Jewish rebels left, and they went and hid out in this, this city that's on top of this plateau. And... They, they, they got up there and they were secure there and then the Roman soldiers under the leadership um, of uh, Flavius, what's his name, Silva, he led a legion of 800 soldiers to that place, surrounded the area and slowly built a ramp. And there they are, the Jewish rebels looking over the edge, watching all the soldiers down there, safe at the moment, watching as, you know, brick by brick, wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow. I don't know if they had wheelbarrows back then, but some way, you know, they're just adding all this dirt now and slowly building this ramp up to the top. And they finally built this ramp up there. They built the siege tower. And when the Romans got there and got in, everyone had killed themselves. The point here is there's this picture, and this is Job seeing himself as this city, and God has put him under siege. And the troops are coming, and it's not ending. It's just ongoing. And he's watching it all take place. And I want you to notice here in verse 12, it says, and encamped around my tent. If you were here last week, that should mean something to you. Because in last week's talk, which is what, what Bildad gave to Job, we find the expression tent, place, way, dwelling, all throughout it. And really there was this picture of the, the way of the, of, the, of the world 
and the way of the wicked. And that was called the tent of the wicked, the dwelling place of the wicked. Now, Job is talking about his own tent, his own world, the world in which he is living. So he's responding to Bildad here with language that Bildad himself has used to speak to Job. And when he looks at his tent, all he can see is the persistent, relentless bombardment of the arrows of the Almighty, the constant torments of his friends harassing him in his tent. But that's not all he's experiencing. He's tormented by his friends, he's bombarded by his God, but he's also abandoned by society. And these verses here, verses 13 through 19 in particular, what we find here is just a buckshot of individuals who have abandoned Job in some way, shape, or form now that he's suffering. Now just notice the people who have abandoned Job. Brothers, those who know Job, relatives, close friends, guests, maidservants, servants, his wife, siblings, intimate friends, those whom I love. He probably should just put in there, et cetera. I mean, he's just saying, everyone's against me. They've all abandoned me. Notice now the words that describe their abandonment. Far from me, estranged from me, failed me, forgotten me, count me as stranger, don't answer me, bad breath, a stench, despised by young children, talked against, abhorred, turned against. I just don't know that there's anyone in this room that has ever come close to feeling what Job is feeling here. He is suffering, and his suffering is great. But it's not just the suffering that he has gone through that came at the hand of Satan that took his family and and took his health and took his possessions. Now he's talking about what has been happening after that. There's more suffering that takes place. And it comes through the torment of his friends, the bombardment of God, and now the abandonment of society. The picture here is that Job is so revolting so offensive that no one wants to be near him or have anything to do with him. They're all slowly removing him as their friend on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. They've stopped including him in their Christmas card lists. They deliberately don't invite him to their Sunday afternoon barbecues. They don't want to help. They just want to forget him and get on with their lives. I mean, friends, just just think of the tone of what Job is saying. This is what it's like to be me. Now, just look at a couple of these pictures in a little bit more detail. His wife, who's supposed to be his helper, she won't have anything to do with him because of his bad breath. You say, I can relate to that. (laughs) Now get this. It's not because Job has not been brushing his teeth. It's because of the suffering that he's been going through. I just want want to speak literally here. When people are sick, when people have physical problems, one of the things that happens is their breath gets sour. So even to interact with them, you have to kind of go in and interact with them on a level of, okay, I've got to endure maybe the bad breath because I care about this person. And you know this is true. At home, when you have family members that get the flu and that kind of stuff, you're, you're, you know, they're probably not going and brushing their teeth all the time. And when they do talk, it's like, whoa, here's your medicine. He is so offensive to his wife that she is a stranger to him. And it's because of his suffering. Notice his servant, who was supposed to be working for him, cannot be found. 
And the only way Job can get any help from his servant is to beg. Well, you're there to serve me. Now please serve me. Where are you? Hey, I need some help here. Please. Hello? The people that are supposed to be by your side helping you and assisting you, they're gone. They're not there. They don't want to be around you. They're changing shifts so that they don't have to serve you. And finally, Job describes himself as revolting in verse 20. And he says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. In all honesty, those who are Bible scholars and language scholars are still trying to figure out exactly what all that means. Because this is actually an expression that's opposite of what we would usually say, right? We usually say our skin is sticking to our bones. Now one of the possibilities is that there's something happening in his bones that is so repulsive that it is actually working from the inside out. And we know the popular expression, you know, I've escaped by the skin of my teeth, but exactly what that means is still up for question. But we know, we know what it means, but specifically how that came about. But it means I am extremely fortunate to still be alive. My body is in such a bad condition that I am barely alive. My body is so emaciated that I have, all I have left is the skin of my teeth. Or simply, it is a miracle that I am still alive. Now friends, this is, this is Job at this point at his worst. He's been interacting with his friends and there's been little, little steps of hope. There's been little glimmers of, of faith. But now he's looking at his situation. He's saying, my, my friends, they're tormenting me. God has, has bombarded me. Everyone else has abandoned me. All that is left for me is to die. And so now he, he appeals for mercy. Verse 21, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. Remember, he's speaking to his friends. He's sharing all this to have an impact on his friends. Friends, do you not see what I have been going through? Have mercy on me. Don't you understand how God has been treating me? Have mercy on me. Don't you see that all of society wants nothing to do with me. Have mercy on me. So he says, why do you like God pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? In other words, you see my suffering. Why isn't that enough for you to be merciful? That you have to keep coming after me with your words accusing me of sin. Have mercy. And it's an expression that's saying, I just don't know that there's anything more I can say. I don't know if there's anything more I, can, I need to prove to you. And yet you still come at me. Notice verse 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Now we know by what we read earlier that God released Job so that the hand of Satan could be the agent of his suffering. But he sees this as all God's doing. Friends, this is, this is a low, low place for Job. He is being beaten by his friends when he is at his lowest place. And he's crying out for mercy. He's weathered so much. 
His friends are against him. God is against him. Society is against him. Why should he press on? Why should he keep fighting? Why not just give up and die? But it is here that Job is, so to speak, on the inner tube of his life with not only his feet being dragged in the water, but his legs and his whole body and his arms are coming out, holding onto these handles. And he's saying, what am I gonna do? I can let go. Or I can hold on. And something happens here. See, this is, this is a lament, and this is, this is very much a story or a, an account of, of, of change, because what happens here now is faith begins to rise. It begins to see, it begins to hope, it begins to hold on stronger. He knows that he's innocent. And what we're going to find out is that he knows that he has a redeemer. And he knows that his friends better look out. So from the struggle of faith, we go to the... Um, the strength of faith, and he begins by focusing on his words. He wants vindication. How do you prepare for vindication? He says, oh, that my words were written. Well, maybe I can write all this down. If you guys won't listen to me, maybe a future generation will listen to me because I will write down the evidence. And that future generation can see, but maybe writing it on paper isn't sufficient. Maybe writing it them in a book is going to be better, or in a scroll. But even better than that, he says, Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Now, image there, right? What is that? Well, the point is, I don't want to write something down that is just going to somehow fade away or can be destroyed. I want to write it so permanently that future generations can see it. So you have this progression, don't you? You have this, this, this writing down on paper, this inscribed in a book, this engraving on a rock. He wants his innocence to be proven to all who would read that evidence. Oh, but friends, what Job doesn't realize is that we are sitting here today reading the evidence that has been written, that does vindicate him. And this cry or this wish, this hope has been realized. There was something prophetic in what he was saying. That now we can see not only that he is innocent, but why he is innocent. And that he has been in the right as far as this doctrine of retribution versus this doctrine, doctrine of redemption. That he has been holding on to the true and living God. He has not been holding on to a false idea of how God works in this world. His words. And then we get to the place that's probably the most famous of all. You've probably heard from this passage because you've listened to Handel's Messiah. Right? I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, we're looking at this section in light of the whole of chapter 19. This section alone is worth time for mining and considering what it is all about. But from the perspective of what's happening in Job's speech here, he's saying, if I could, in my words, have them recorded. But he says, another thing that I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, I want you to land, first of all, on, verse, uh, on the first part here of this particular verse, verse 25. I know now, friends, this is, this is a key hinge 
to Job's faith and his faith and his fight for that faith. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 77, if you would, please. I want, I want you to see this, uh, another passage where there is this movement in, in a lament. And there's this battle for faith. Psalm 77, in my opinion, is just a great and helpful example of that. And here we have a a person who is going through some kind of trial, some kind of struggle. And what's awesome for us is we don't know what it is. What that means is we can't just say, well, it's only for this particular kind of struggle. It's for all sorts of different struggles, right? So Psalm 77 is really helpful. Let's just begin by, I'm just going to walk you through it briefly here. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night of my, my hand is stretched out with wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. So he, he, he can't sleep. He can't speak. His mind is racing. I considered the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. I just remember those good times, those times when, when my relationship with God was right, when things were going smoothly, when I was praising God. And then my, my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? And here's some questions that are powerful as well as almost blasphemous. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Of course, the answer to all those questions is no, 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 no. But he's feeling this. His experience has brought him to the place where he's asking these questions. But now look at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then he goes into some specifics about Israel at the Red Sea and God's deliverance there. Now, the point here is this. Difficulty, struggle, questions, heartache, and then all of a sudden, faith that says, I will, I will, I will. Now, this isn't the power of positive thinking. That's not what's going on here. What the psalmist is doing is saying, I will, what does he say? I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will reflect on all those times when God displayed his strength. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. See, I will remember what has already taken place. I will meditate them. I will, re I will reflect on them. It's, it's a deliberate desire to say, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to fight through this. Now, I share that with you because it's a little bit, it's fleshed out more here in Psalm 77. You go back to Job in Job 19. He says, I know. And what he knows is fuel for him to begin to pull himself back up on the inner tube, to grab a hold of the handle, so to speak, and to say, I can find perspective, I can find hope, I can find rest in what I know. My friends, hear this. You can't do that if you don't know. <laughs> so what is it that Job knows? Well, as I mentioned earlier, what Job has already revealed in some of these times where he has struggled and he's risen up with faith is that he has a witness in heaven. He has an advocate who will argue against God, but it's God arguing against God. And now he says, I know that I have a redeemer. 
But there's three ways we can look at this. He knows that his redeemer lives. Now, this English word redeemer is the Hebrew word goel. And it's a word that means to lay claim to a person or thing, to free or to deliver. A redeemer in the Old Testament was a person who provided protection or legal preservation for a close relative who could not do those things for themselves. So he could redeem the relative's property that had passed into other hands. He could avenge a slain relative. He could marry his brother's childless widow. Remember the story of Ruth? There's a kinsman redeemer who comes to her aid. He could buy a close relative out of slavery. He could defend his cause in a lawsuit. And so Job is confident that such a redeemer exists who would defend his cause and act as a family member indebted to maintain his honor and his integrity. Now hear this. He doesn't say, I know that there will be a redeemer. What does he say? I know that my Redeemer lives, is living now. I have a Redeemer, and he is here now. So the question is, who is that Redeemer? Well, that Redeemer, of course, is none other than God himself. In the book of Isaiah 44 and verse 6, we find the prophet referring to God as Israel's king and Redeemer. Israel would call their God their Redeemer. And so Job is saying, I know that I have a Redeemer, that God takes this role of redeeming. Now, hear this. A a Redeemer is someone who is obligated because of relationship to stand with you and to stand for you. In Old Testament terms, that would be There is a covenant, there is a promise that keeps that Redeemer to actually follow through with what they said they're going to do. He knows that his Redeemer lives. Secondly, he knows that his Redeemer will stand upon the earth. Now, what does that mean? Okay, he's standing on the earth. Okay, great, what's happening here? Some translations understand here the word earth either to be dust or to be the grave. But the idea is that this redeemer will stand on the earth and will say for all to hear that Job has been vindicated, that he is innocent. And that although Job is the the recipient of the arrows of the Almighty, he is also confident of God's responsibility as a redeemer to vindicate him. So he knows that he has a redeemer, but he also knows that this redeemer redeems, (laughs) vindicates, justifies, that he will stand for him, that he will speak for him. And his vindication will be more secure than anything written on paper anything written in a book or anything written on a stone. I mean, Job's tombstone, he's thinking, could say, here lies Job, the innocent one who suffered unjustly. But we've all been to gravesites where tombstones have faded. There's no more words there. You can barely make them out. This vindication, this redeemer is truly for the ages because God has spoken. So he knows that he has a redeemer who lives and that he has a redeemer who will stand on the earth, but he also knows that in his flesh that he will see God. Now certainly there's aspects here that point to the reality of the resurrection that Job is anticipating that he's going to die, but he also recognizes that post-death that he is going to be 
in flesh again, and when he's in flesh again, he is going to see God. You're going to say, wait a second, that death, resurrection. So we have in verse 26, and after my skin has been, has, uh, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eye shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. So we have a, a picture of the, the resurrection here, anticipating his death, but knowing that in his flesh he will see God. But there's also, again, vindication, because to see God means that you are in right relationship with God. To be able to stand before God means that you're able to stand face to face with him, him alone. It's the emphasis here. And my, I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold. This is me and God. And so he's moved now from, from his, his trouble and his struggle and his suffering and, and, and this woe is me. He's still anticipating that he's going to die, but he's moved now by faith to be strong and to trust in his Redeemer. In fact, it's interesting that the end of the book of Job, Job 42, you want to just briefly look there. Um, here's what it says. I just want you to notice verse 5. This is Job speaking to God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So he's anticipating what ultimately does happen. Now flash forward a little bit. Turn to Psalm 19 for a second here. Psalm 19. Just to tile this together. If the, if the thing that is the catalyst, so to speak, for Job is that he knows, what is it that he needs to know? He needs to know more about God and he needs to know more about his way. Now for us, what does that mean? It doesn't mean going out and looking at leaves and looking at clouds. And that kind of, it means having our nose in, in the book, right? What is Psalm 19 all about? Heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day-to-day -day pours out speech, night-to-night -night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Verse 7 now, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules. This is all about God's revealed word given to us. Notice down at verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my what? My rock and my redeemer. If you're going to know God as your redeemer, you're going to have to pour yourself into his precepts, into his testimonies. That gives you the assurance that what you know is true. That is the means by which you hold on Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Just bring this a little bit to the New Testament here. Titus 2, verse 14. I'll pick it up at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This redemption, this role of God, as well as the Son of God, is for the children of God, for those whom he is drawing to himself, for those who are his, he is there redeeming them. 
But now notice the warning. We finish this up with a warning. He's speaking to his friends, right? So all of this he's saying, he's saying now to his friends, I have been in this, this, this deep pit. You have tormented me. God has been bombarding me. Society has abandoned me. And I'm just crying out for mercy. But there's a sense in which he comes down from this low pit and he rises up to his friends and he says, but I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's not just saying that for his own benefit, right? He's saying this to his friends. And I know that he will stand on the earth and he will vindicate me. And I know that I will see him face to face. Having said that now, verse 28. Now, if you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him. You see what he's saying? You have been accusing me, you have been pursuing me, and you've been saying the problem is my sin. If you continue to go down that path, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. That's pretty heavy. Faith not only helps you to rise up in the midst of your suffering, it also helps you to speak boldly based on God's truth to those who are voices seeking to derail you from holding on to God as he is revealed in his word. He was crying out for mercy. Now he's crying out in warning. (laughs) You better watch out, guys. Don't keep going down this path. I summarized it in three questions here at the end, or three statements at the end here. What you know about God and his ways will help you. Fight for faith while It helps you to fight for faith while in the fog of suffering. That's what it does. Knowing God will do that. Secondly, it will help you see error for what it is. The more you know about God, the more you'll be able to see what is not an accurate reflection of God. The more you know about God's ways, the more you'll be able to counter the voices, the religious voices in this world that are saying, but that's not how God works. He works this way. And you're like, no, 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 no. Because that's not what it actually says in Scripture. And then finally, when you know about God and his ways, it will help you to face opposing voices with confidence. Now, they may not like it. They might not like the fact that you have a conviction that you know what is true. They might say, you are an arrogant buffoon. And you can say, yes, for the glory of God. It's not that you're being arrogant. It's not that you're a buffoon. It's that you have a conviction. You believe in something that is revealed by God that is true. When you know you're able to fight by faith out of that situation or maybe stay in that situation, but you're still able to fight by faith with what you know for the glory of God. Friends, our Redeemer lives and he still lives. May we continue to learn about him, to grow in him and to allow him to faithfully represent us and vindicate us. Lord, help us today as we consider this. There's so much more that we could say and maybe, Lord, more that you want us to hear. May we ponder the realities, Lord, that you are our redeemer. We are undeserving and yet, Lord, because we are yours, you pursue us, you redeem us, you welcome us, you elevate us, not just to be family members, but heirs, joint heirs. It's so undeserving, 
And yet, Lord, we are so privileged. Help us, Lord, not to minimize your grace. Lord, help us to allow that grace to move us to worship you for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing. We ask now in your precious name, amen.